Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and a warm welcome to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. My name's Joe Haddo and I'll be the ringmaster for the upcoming War of the Words, which will no doubt ensue between two writers a little later on. My first guest is a writer, broadcaster and musician who's published three books about football, a poetry collection and has had work featured in many publications across the world. Here to talk about his new book, In the End, it was all about love, is Musa Okwanga. Hello. Hey, how's it going? You good? You good? I'm really good. How are Thank you? I'm very well indeed. I got my uh, my coffee with my oat milk like a true Berliner. So. <laughs> <laughs> very on brand. Very on very brand. Very on brand, <laughs> And my second guest is a novelist and editor based in Cornwall, whose debut novel, The Many, was longlisted for the Van Booker Prize back in 2016, and I talk about it all the time. He's written for Radio 4's Open Book, The Guardian, and many other publications, and he teaches creative writing at Falmouth University. Here to tell us about his latest book, Foxfires, it's Will Menmuir. Hello. Hello, Joe. Hi, Musa. Uh, lovely to be here. It's so great to have you both. Um, now, Musa, I know Will from 2016 because I host the uh, Booker Prize podcast. Oh, wow. So we uh, met when he was longlisted and I uh, w- was a huge, am a huge fan of, of that book. And ever since, um, we've sort of been keep- well, keeping in touch, haven't we, Will, about books and writing and various other things and i'm desperate to come visit you in cornwall well similarly I, and, and and being in cornwall i'm i'm now desperate to come back to london actually yeah. <laughs> have one of those nice little cocktails well we should uh, yeah. when we're allowed and of course by the end of this podcast the plan is that uh Musa will invite me over to berlin when it's allowed and you know i, I can have a, another you didn't friend get the invite there. you didn't get the invite <laughs> didn't arrive strangely well I, I thought i've been strong-armed into doing this as a condition i'd invite you over so <laughs> that's, it. that's it come on if you want by the way i, I need an invite yeah that's exactly how it went yeah <laughs> so over the next uh, 30 40 minutes or so we're going to talk about your writing these fabulous two new books that i have next to me which i've read and really enjoyed uh, and also we're going to do the book off of course where each of you gets to tell us about a book that you absolutely love that you think we should all read we'll come to that later uh, 
Musa, let's talk about, in the end, it was all about love. Firstly, uh, what a title. I mean, as soon as I read it, I thought, gosh, (laughs) the title alone does so much. Um, Did the title come first or did you think of that after? The title came first. You know how it is, naming such a strange thing. And I was having a conversation with my therapist or counsellor of all things, whatever you say, um, because I basically thought I had to go to counselling. I was 36 years old and... I was four years from the age that my dad was when he passed and I didn't know how to process it, this sense of grief because it was almost like a kind of end life crisis. So I went to this therapist, the counselor talked about it and said, look, I'm 36 years old and my dad died and he was 40 and I feel like I haven't, I haven't matched up to what he did in his life because he had a, you know, he did a lot of great things with his life. And I was talking about my quest to create something that was worthy of my dad. And I talked about this quest and the journey it had taken me on. And then at some point in the conversation with him, I said, you know, in the end, it was all about love. And I stopped and I was like, I have to write about this and I have to call it that. And that's where it came from. Yeah. It came from that conversation. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And isn't that brilliant? And Will's nodding along here as if to say yes, you know, because it is wonderful, isn't it? Especially for a writer or any creative when something just drops in from, yes. and, and you know, like that's it. That's the, the germ of whatever this thing is going to be. And to, uh, I, th- I think to, to me, to me, it seems like the perfect, perfect, uh, perfect title there. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, it doesn't surprise me that that's where you started. <laughs> you kind of have to, because it's like when you, when you're writing an essay at uni or something, and you know how it is, you, you teach yourself, it's like, you have to set the terms, don't you? And if you set, if you start with that strong tone, that strong opening paragraph, they always say, say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you've said. And I felt like that title was the kind of framework for everything that would come afterwards. And wherever I went with the book, I always knew I was going to come back to that, that, that motif, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the, the sort of father-son relationship in, in the, the big spectrum of relationships that there are in the world is, is a brilliant one, but also can be a tricky one, can't it? Because, you know, we, most people do look up to their fathers. There's a sort of hero status there think no matter what they do or you know our background there's it's sort of it, i don't know i don't know if you agree with us but it's sort of no you're right it. it feels like you're chasing i would even say it's different from looking up to them. it's almost like you're chasing them if that makes sense um because looking up implies obviously that like there's some states they're above you but they're almost they start ahead of you and if they if they die basically in my case almost before you're conscious of a relationship with them they're never in sight they're like uh they're like the horizon, if that makes mm. sense. And you're always running towards them. And I suppose what happened to me at the age of 36 was all of a sudden the horizon, a bit like Truman Burbank in the Truman Show, the horizon all of a sudden was two feet away and I had no idea how to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was my story, I guess. Well, tell us a little bit about it then, just for those listening who may not have got to this, uh, may I say, very beautiful book that's been published by Rough Trade Books. Uh, just just tell us about the story and, and why it's told by a, a nameless narrator. Okay, so the story, very quick, the book itself is very short. It's 120 pages long. And that's deliberate because I wanted it to be the kind of book that anyone could read as part of this kind of Instagram generation where everyone's busy. Like, and I wanted to create a book that slotted into everyone else's lifestyle. The other thing was I wanted to write a book that was extremely intense. So, you know, like it's sort of 70% proof chocolate, very, very strong. You can't yam it down. But <laughs> if you really want to yam it, you get a real hit, a real rush. So that was the kind of form of the book. And the book itself, in terms of the story, I wanted the book to be based on my life heavily, but also I wanted it to be a book for anyone that was navigating life in a new city. And Will can speak to this as well with your new novel, which I've obviously just begun and is brilliant. 
Will speaks to the sense of trying to find yourself in successive cities. And we arrive in new cities, but we bring our old baggage with us. And the new city hopefully can be a prison through which we can reframe our relationship with ourselves. And Will, obviously that's part of your writing, the new book that I'm reading. Um, and I wanted this book to be a kind of a two for one. So my emotional journey, but I wrote it in the second person present so people could, you know, they always say like walk a mile in my shoes. I wanted the reader to take an exercise in empathy and put themselves in my shoes. So the book begins, very universal, arrival in Berlin. You know, universal experiences, arrival, fall in love, break up, and then it takes the reader into a completely different territory. And by then, hopefully, they're already in my shoes. And then it keeps them there for the rest of the book. So basically, the story is um, it's a series of fragments. I'm going to take a breath because I don't want to speak my name in the same breath as those great writers I'll talk of. Teju Cole, Every Day is for the Thief, and Fernando Pessoa, uh, The Book of Disquiet. Fragments of memory that seem in isolation, but when you put them together, have a kind of emotional narrative about finding yourself and whether your life has been of worth, about grief, memory, loss, sexuality, and city life. So yeah, just that. That's just it. that. Just that in, <laughs> in like 120 pages. Yeah, but that's what the book is about. Yeah. No big deal. Um, but but Will, to your book, which is also um, a pretty short one, isn't it? I think it comes under 200, yeah. uh, Foxfires. This is your, your second novel. Um, Yep. Tell us about Ren and her story, because as as Mus has already mentioned, you know there are there are slight similarities in theme with these books. Mm. So, uh, so Fox Fires is the story about a nineteen year old girl Ren Lithgow who's arriving in in a city that she's never visited, and I think uh, what Musa was saying about uh, about um, about particular place, particular place, and particular things, I can really I can really empathise with that sort of approach. Um, because because I think in some ways, even though yours is set in a very definite place and you describe how how Berlin is in that opening section of the book, um, I kind of wanted to do that, but with a city that doesn't exist. And so she arrives in, in, in the city state of O with the with the sole idea that she's going to track down the father that she has never known. She knows that she was conceived in this city and she knows that her mother won't talk about it. And um and so she's got this sort of burning desire to, to 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 track him down to understand the place where she comes from. It's a it's a novel about home, really. Where how do you how do you go about creating a city that doesn't exist? I know that, that that might sound like a stupid question because obviously if you write fiction and you're an author, you you've got this imagination. But I, what I mean is, why O and why this sort of slightly mystical place? Oh, I haven't really thought about that question really before, um, because it seemed to make sense rather than rather than set it somewhere I know well, um, and and get the details wrong. I can't get the details wrong if I make up a place from scratch. You can't tell me, oh well, that street doesn't turn off that street. Um, so I I quite and I quite like playing with playing with a place as part of just like I create a character. I stitch together characters from different people that I know. And I've stitched together O oh, from all the different cities that I visited, cities that I've loved. Um, I think because I started this just around the time when we had the Brexit ref referendum, I was thinking about Europe. I was thinking about places that I have loved, places that I've visited over and over again, places that have stuck in my head. And so I stitched together a city that would, that would A, be some sort of reflection on Europe in a way it is it's kind of a love letter to Europe mm. um, and in another way it had to be 
almost like the antagonist um, in itself. It had to challenge Ren, um, which is something I'm quite interested in, how place challenges us, not just how other people challenge us. And I think, and again, that talks to, 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 uh, to your novel, I think, Masuri, in that you describe at the beginning, right, right in those opening pages, if I'm right, the specific way in which Berlin will turn on you at some yes, point. Yes, yes, yes. It's funny because for you, you talk about it being money, which is brilliant. Like you have a kind of, there's a thing that a city does to you, right? There's a reason why a city accepts you or rejects you at some point. And I was actually doing some uh, work with um, a photographer recently and she had that conversation. She goes, yeah, because she'd read something. She's like, yeah, like Berlin punched me in the stomach at some point. <laughs> and it's the same routine. You kind of get here. It's all lovely, wonderful honeymoon. And then there's like, oh, this city is not going to yield to me as readily as the initial appearance suggested. So the city, this thing about the city being the antagonist, I love that. That is exactly how I feel. Like, um, you know, I'm a football writer. and I always say there's three elements in every football match. There's the relationship between you, the viewer, um, the uh, the players on the pitch, and the crowd. There's just three elements at all times, right? There's a, and the same in a city. Like there's your interaction with the people, then also the surrounding context, the city. But mm. some cities are so assertive, they become almost like an extra person in that conversation. Yeah, definitely. And in this sense, in in this novel in particular, it's a city in which you are watched. It's a wow. city in which you can't just go about your business um, and uh, and get away with that. There's there are people watching you all the time, and actually, there's. Um, so I was a bit I was a bit nervous coming on with you because I know nothing about football, and I thought <laughs> if we get taken down the football route, I've got nothing to talk about. So several people have tried to take me to the football many 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 times um, from when I was very young until only a few years ago when I think people gave up and and they get really frustrated because they say why why aren't you watching what's going on on the pitch? I said because actually the people who are here they're fascinating. <laughs> I want right, to watch that's the that's how you watch football. That's how you watch football. That's <laughs> oh, so I've been doing it right. I've been doing yes, it right all along. Do, all your friends are doing it wrong. that's good that's good that's that's like that's like validation for me that's they're all wrong so i had to i i I actually put a little bit about football into into this novel there's there's i think i'm sure it made it into it i hope it did um there's a small line about uh, people watching football on television and um in, in any football match in O, at least half of the audience will be watching each other um spying on each other informing on each other and and i i love the idea of a, a whole crowd of people most of whom are there to keep tabs on everyone else who's there it's very east berlin actually isn't it mm. it's very east berlin like you know like the um, like just before the war came yeah, down definitely oh my yeah. goodness that's that and and lots lots of what um lots of the little bits that have happened of things that i things that i've um read about bits of history that i know bits of history i say bits of history probably from novels to be honest and it's like, <laughs> like the panopticon the jeremy bentham thing isn't it when everyone can see everyone exactly exactly oh, yeah that. yeah there's a oh. lot of that in it well the thing is when you're watching football i think it's um i went to watch the game barcelona and it's occurred to me someone said to me can you explain football to somebody who doesn't love it or who doesn't understand and i said okay well imagine imagine going to the royal festival hall to see an orchestra only there was no sheet music before everyone starts playing and a moment before everyone turns the page someone hands out new sheet music they've been writing in front of all of you that is the football that's why it's so beguiling watching leo messi because you see him you see leo messi writing the sheet music in front of ninety thousand people every single time 
that is why it's so thrilling like because it's the visceral yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds like football's more like jazz than classical then yes exactly oh my goodness yeah perfect perfect analogy absolutely it's jazz really it's um you know like even when you've got a free a, a jam session there's a sense of form mm. there's still somebody calling the shots even though like it's not just like yeah there's always a structure to it so yeah yeah jazz rather than classical like that description in the liner notes for Miles Davis kind of blue where he talks about going in with this this idea he's got it he's we know the general direction in which we're going but he says I want everyone to kind of let go of that and uh, and take it where you need to take it I understand football <gasps> I've written an entire I've written an entire segment on like how the best Barcelona team I've ever seen or the best team I've ever seen one of the players is basically the bass player right and so he controls always the tempo. He never loses the ball. He loses the ball like twice a game in 90 minutes. And he's the bass player. And we all know that the bass player is one of the most skillful players in the band. Anyone that's ever played in a band knows that the bass players are the hardest to get to play for your band because they're always in 10 other bands. The front men are the most expendable, which is ironic. The same as in football, they're the most visible, but actually the most important players are the drum and bass because you can't find them just anywhere. And the same is true in football. Joe, we've been we, we, we've we've taken this sorry. in a totally different. Direction. Sorry, sorry. I'm just I'm just an observer here, very much enjoying the conversation. So you know, <laughs> you, you guys carry on, please. And <laughs> no. I'm, I'm a huge jazz fan, so this sort of football as jazz thing is really it's really helping. Mm. Good. <laughs> wow, Musa, you mentioned the sort of style of the book in in the sense that you referenced some other authors, and I I found it sort of quite poetic in its in its style and I wondered if that's just how it came out or if that was deliberate if you sort of went into into writing it with that in mind uh, yeah I mean I, I took and actually I want to just say shout out to my agent Abby Fellows and to Rough Trade Books because they took a, a risk on this uh, everyone else said no to it and I think it's because everyone else is like this book is neither fictional foul is it poetry is it prose is it a novella is it a novel is it fiction is it non-fiction I didn't know what to do with it and Rough Trade and Abby were just like it's a book it's a really good book that we support and I wanted, and the reason I'm so proud to have this book out in the world is because I took every single creative risk I could take. I start each of the three parts. It's such a short book, but it has three parts. Each part starts with a poem, and each poem foreshadows an element of magic realism uh, in the book. So each part basically proceeds with hard realism and then has an element of magic realism somewhere in the book. And yeah, so the form was deliberate. I wanted it to be reasonably poetic because my background is in poetry performance poetry where i started and i love the kind of classics i love the kind of dante's inferno and all the rest of that and i wanted to kind of trojan horse people into reading a book that was basically a book of poetry <laughs> <laughs> and i did it <laughs> clever boy yeah. well done <laughs> so yeah that was that was my agenda yeah that was definitely my agenda yeah isn't that always the way with a with a, with a novel though is getting to the end of it and thinking yeah i've got away with that <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> Honestly, Will, when when the when the um, edits came back, and shout out to Will, he did a great job. Will Burns, um, when the edits came back, there was a particular section that I, I was like, oh my gosh, I got away with it. There's a part of the book where you're like, I've definitely got away with that, and Will just left it as it was. And I t spoke to Kate McQuaid, and Kate was like, you wrote that part in one go, didn't you? And I was like, yeah, I did. I can't believe they let me do it. But yeah, there it is. I won't say which part it is, but it will become clear to anyone that reads the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Will, I know that for your first novel, The Many, you, you spent uh, many an hour out on the cliffs looking out to the sea, either for inspiration or sort of writing there. Is, was that the, the case for this novel? Because unlike The Many, which is 
in an uh, well it's it, it doesn't say it's in a cornish town does it it's in a, it's in a small fishing town uh, we never know exactly where it is but obviously the exact opposite as we took discussed for this book which is a city so did, did you still go out to the to those sort of beautiful cliffs to write uh, so i did go out to the cliffs to write um, but lots of it was lots of it was in my own head really um this was this is a novel about in a way, it's a novel about memory. It's a novel about the memory of things, the novel, the, um, the memory of places. And so while I wanted to go out to um, to some of these cities, I didn't I, I didn't get the chance to do that in this. Um, I spent some t I spent quite a lot of time on Google Street View in different um, lots, lots of um, sort of Polish cities, uh, Russian cities, Ukrainian cities, um, were just wandering. Um, and there are some, actually, the more time you spend on, um, on, on, on Google Street View, the more you realise there's some really weird stuff on there. Um, I don't know whether people do it on purpose in different places, but there are some strange sites and they kind of seep their way into this. Um, but yeah, I, I, still, I still wrote some of it up on the cliffs. Um, but it was definitely more a novel that was that was in my head, even though it's a much, much bigger setting. Um, in a way, yeah. it's just on a different scale, because with the many, I stitched together a village from different villages. I've just done the same trick with with, with a city. I've stitched together a city from other cities, but it has got its, it's got its own layout. It's got I know where different things are in the city. I've got quite a clear view of of it as a place. Mm. Yeah. Um, just just going back to a, 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 a discussion point earlier with the sort of love letter to Europe thing that you mentioned, Will, in the book and Musa, with you being in Berlin on the day, the morning that it was announced that um, we were going to leave the EU, I flew to Berlin, hilariously, and spent five days with some friends in Berlin and we went because of the uh, the World Cup or the Euros? Uh, the Euro, uh, 24, uh, 16, yeah, it been the Euros. Euros. Yeah, yeah. And we went over to have a sort of, you know, lo long long week, uh, long weekend, just watching the football and, you know, and what happened that first day as we landed, we were all looking a bit dejected because all of me, me and all our friends just, you know, couldn't, couldn't quite believe it. And then um, we went to watch England play and I think we were playing Iceland or someone. And when Iceland scored a goal, the whole of Berlin erupted. <laughs> Oh my god! And we were, and we were sat there. This this sort of group of six six Brits in the middle, and we we were thinking, do we sh do we shout when England score, or do we just oh, keep no. going? <laughs> anyway, I thought it was appropriate in the in the European slash Berlin slash football sense of our conversation. No, no, so no. It's funny you should mention because we had a moment. We did um, we had a Brexit wake. You know, the, the, so the day that the um. UK was supposedly before the extension. So that night we had a load of poetry readings um, oh, to kind of say farewell to the EU. And it all, you know, of course they extended by a few months at the very last minute. And so that didn't happen. But so by the time we actually left the EU, I was kind of more ready for it. But there mm. was a kind of stage and people, people will laugh at this. They will laugh at this and go, oh my goodness, you pathetic lefties. But it's the theft of opportunity from future generations. Like you're not mourning it for yourself because I've come here, I've got my residency. It's not about me, it's about the people that can't just get up and make completely new lives spontaneously for themselves. Yeah. Or the possibility thereof. 
not just the trade not just that but the kind of the friendships that i've made in berlin the next generation of brits will not make they just won't because they won't be possible that's yeah. that's heartbreaking that's what people are grieving a lot of the time i agree yeah. and and even you know a lot of people talk about whether they do it or not is another thing but a lot of younger people certainly would talk about you know let's go and live in berlin for a year you know let's go and live in france for a year they could talk about it whether they did it or not because it was a possibility whereas now you sort of think that those even those thoughts and those dreams of doing something like that just won't won't happen it's unbelievable i mean how can you give away 27 passports in one night visas how how the hell can you do i don't i will never ever understand i don't care what anyone says i'll never understand it because being doing that getting up and moving changed my entire life it changed my career i was here for within two years of being here i met friends who became such good friends that two years later i was conducting the wedding ceremony i've been in, i've been here for six and a half years now i've written i think five five wow. books in six and a half years this city has changed my life yeah I mean, this is a whole other podcast. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, but absolutely. There but go. there it is. Just <laughs> for the record, for the record, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> for the record, indeed. Um, and before I ask you about what you've been reading recently, which I always ask my guests because it's always fascinating to know. Um, a word for both of your publishers, because you actually already mentioned them, uh, Musa, Rough Trade Books, and Will Salt have published this, your second novel, they published your first one as well. Both small indies, but both doing really great work, both taking chances on books, both, you know, publishing really great stuff. And I think it's worth just mentioning both of them uh, for, for those listening to perhaps go and check out the back catalogue as well as your two latest novels. Gladly. I'll just quickly sing the praises of, of Rough Trade. They understood immediately what I was trying to achieve with this book. Um, the physical design of it is absolutely stunning. Um, they did like a thousand limited edition and I actually loved them so much that I bought. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, so I was entitled to five through my contract. I went out and bought, bought five more. I just wanted, I want, yeah, I just wanted that many copies for myself because yeah. I love it so much in the design. <laughs> Shout out to Craig Oldham, who did the design as well. But like Nina, Will and Kate at Rough Trade they've been unbelievable and i'd encourage anybody to check out their back catalog it's so varied as well the collection of poetry i think i'm the first uh book of prose so to speak they've published they published lots of poetry before me and they're just really smart brilliant they're innovative and the amount of press they've got for me it's unbelievable for a book that people said couldn't be published the visibility they've achieved for it has been like just spectacular like, i cannot i cannot complain so thank you huge thank you to them and any author wanting to reach out to them, give them a go. They should, yeah. yeah. And on this very series, the same as this this episode's going out on, we have a, another Rough Trade author, um, Sheena, who's part of Four Brown Girls Who Write, who put out a poetry collection. It's brilliant. Musa, you know hey, it. That is a brilliant collection. That is a serious yeah. piece of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we've... We're singing the praises of Rough Trade here on Book <laughs> as much yes, as we can. Yes. So, and Will, a word for Salt, because I, as you know, love them too. So, so I came to Salt through, um, well, two, two, diff two different routes, really. Um, one was having read Alison Moore, um, The Lighthouse, which I started with, and then a, a brilliant novel by Alice Thompson, um, which uh, Salt published, um, Burnt Island, I think it was, that I started with and have since gone on to pretty much everything that they've they've written um and it just so happened that um that one of my lecturers 
during my MA was Nicholas Royal, who was a commissioning editor, and he then became my editor. And the experience, I know some some people, are, some some novelists I've met have said those early experiences of uh, being edited can be quite bruising um and it was it was the opposite of that it was a it was a lovely lovely process and when um when i got the opportunity to work with salt for a second time i was really keen to have 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 nicholas on board as well um with that and it was again what he did he sort of gently um gently maneuvered me through questions to a better to a better outcome at the end of it um he asked me some just just little little questions he said oh uh why did you choose to do that? And when I went away and thought about it, I thought, actually, I need to change that whole <laughs> section because he's he's right. Not that he said it's wrong. He's just questioned it. <laughs> and then, like you were saying about the cover, um, I'm I, I, again, with Salt, I get quite a lot of input into what the cover is. I work with a brilliant designer called John Oakey. And I sent John and Nick a... Um, a little image of a girl looking back over her shoulder, which came from a um, came from a newspaper. Um, I don't know where the newspaper came from. I didn't know which newspaper it was. Um, I don't know when it was published. I just sent it and said, "Look, that's my, in my head. That's what the, um, the the cover is." And Nick then sent me a couple of days later an image of a similar girl looking back over her shoulder. I saw it wasn't the same. It was just very, very similar. I was like, how on earth did you get that? And he had taken a photograph of his daughter. And then John used that to create the um, to create the front cover. And so I've got an image of uh, my editor's daughter on the front cover of, of my novel. And I <laughs> love wonderful. that. It just makes it so much more special. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of the only thing you'd that that sort of thing would only happen within an indie i think as well you know within this sort of yeah. family of of writers and publishers so that's, that's you know what's really amazing nice as well i'll say this as well and nina has been incredible for this as well it's not just the kind of um the vision to put the book out it's the fact that you know they've got other books to promote but you feel like you're the only book they're promoting it's really strange because you know they're super busy you know they've got tons on but like they always give you that special care you never feel like you're part of a kind of chorus line production line so i've got to i've got to like say i'm so grateful for that that's good that's good you know that's good praise the publishers will be happy with that they'll feel they'll feel loved they'll feel loved i hope so yes and we look we love all publishers but it's good to single these yeah, yeah. these two out anyway um and before we get to the book off i'd love to know what you've both been reading recently and enjoying because we get a right old spectrum of things uh with the guests on this podcast i for one have just started the 900 pages of a philip roth uh biography um so what have you been reading and enjoying recently? it's eclectic so obviously my shout out to my man nika shukla brown baby his memoir finding freedom harry and megan the making of a modern royal family oh that wow was, yeah because <laughs> Those people, it's fascinating reading access journalism because there's, there's, it's as much as what they don't say as what they do say. It's quite Jane Austen in that sense. Um, <laughs> Mohsen and Hamad, Exit West. Yes. And also, um, last but certainly not least, perhaps most of all, Songs My Enemy Taught Me by Joel Taylor, a collection of poems about the kind of aftermath of, I suppose, of sexual assault, trauma, is astonishing. Joel's an incredible writer. So yeah, those are the kind of the books I've been reading. So nice, nice eclectic. I like to read different things at once because it pulls my brain in different directions at once. And then yes. when yeah. you do that enough, then other bits fall in the gaps. So yeah. 
yeah. Uh, that's a nice way of thinking of it, yeah. What about you, Will? Uh, so recently, uh, what's on my bedside table at the moment is a Jim Crace novel um, that I hadn't read, uh, which uh, we've been talking a little bit about, uh, football and jazz. This one's more on the jazz side. <laughs> it's all that follows. Um, and uh, again, I'm, 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 I, I, it's uh, probably one of the only ones of his novels that I hadn't read. Um, it's kind of completing, completing <laughs> the collection. Um, so which, again, it's just fantastic writing. Um, but uh, also on my bedside table, I've got um, Helen Scales's The Brilliant Abyss, uh, which is a non-fiction book about the deep, the deep sea. Oh, wow. Oh, and wow. Okay. That I have to check. That. Every single page. I'm j it's just blowing my mind. Um, and I keep, I, I, I keep on say, uh, leaning over to my wife and say, while she's reading as well, and say, saying, you, did you know that <laughs> something about a vampire squid? And, she, and she's like, she's like, yeah, do you know? I'll, I'll probably read it later. <laughs> uh, but it's one of those books that you just can't help yourself. Just go. What I've got to tell someone about this. Um, so much stuff. Uh, obviously, it's 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 based on that idea that we know less about the deep sea than we do about the surface of the moon. Um, and she again, she just uh, it's there's this it's packed Sounds with amazing. fascinating stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, quite a lot of non-fiction at the moment. Um, I've just finished rereading uh, Adam Nicholson's *The Seabirds Cry*, um, which again is is it's, it's, it's a non-fiction book about um, about following I think ten different seabirds and their amazing lives, <laughs> and also the disturbing stories behind the science why we know this stuff about the birds because we've done terrible things to them to find these things out he's it's quite it's quite brutal um wow and then yeah i've, I've, been, I've been reading um a couple of uh, i've been i've been dipping back into detective fiction um i've i like many people i found it very difficult to read over uh, through through the various lockdowns so i've been returning to things that things that are very familiar um, and for me, that will quite often be Raymond Chandler. Um, I've been, I've been uh, at the moment. I think I'm. A, it's the Big Sleep. I'm reading, rereading at the moment. I mean, rereading for I don't know how many times I've read that book. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's like an old friend. Yeah, I did exactly the same thing last year. Will I had, uh, I went back and read the Big Big Sleep and Lady in the Lake. I think mm. but, uh, Big Sleep. I probably read five times, six times now, and um, you know, it just it was a comfort thing as well. I did that with so, Kurt Vonnegut yeah, actually. Breakfast of Champions. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, had to do it last year. Had to just have, you know, again. I think I think there's something about a book you'd read before, meaning that you know maybe you didn't need to concentrate as much on it. Therefore, you could. You, it, it, I don't know. It just I just needed that to sort of get me back into it a bit. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Fascinating lists, both of those. Thank you for those recommendations. And talking of recommendations, it's time now for The Book Off. <laughs> this is where each of yeah. you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you love, that you think we should all read. Um, and uh, it's a it's 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 a friendly competition, let's call it that. Yeah. Um, we've got to find out who goes first and who goes second. We've got to find out who's going to get the horn <laughs> and who's going to get the bell. Uh, firstly, though, let's find out what you're putting up for The Book Off. So, Musa, what's your book choice? My book choice is The Bone Readers by Jacob Ross, a detective novel set in Grenada. Fantastic. And um, here's, where, here's where it gets slightly um, tricky for you, Musa, because <laughs> Will uh, is putting up one of my favourite novels of all time. <laughs> Will? See, uh, this, this, this to totally unplanned, obviously. Uh, so I'm putting up um, James Salter's Light Years, which I did not know was Joe, one of Joe Haddo's favourite books of all time. <laughs> but look, it's based on the pitch. It's not based on any preconceptions that I bring. So uh, th th there's no, yeah. there's no favourite. To be honest, this is just, my agenda is really just to plug this book because I think it's so brilliant. It just needs to be talked about. So yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Then. There we go. I'm sold already. Um, <laughs> Will, would you like to go first or second? I would like to get it out of the way. So I would like to go first. And all, uh, yeah, and then I can enjoy listening to, 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 to Musa's detective. Very good pitch. plan. I like, I like your thinking. Uh, so then, Musa, you get three minutes, um, but you don't have to use them. If you do go over the three minutes, though, I'll either ring you out or honk you out. Which would you prefer, the honk or the bell? Uh, the honk. Let's be dramatic. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> Okay, yeah. <laughs> let's have it. <laughs> um, so, Will, it's over to you. I'm going to put three minutes on the clock uh, to tell us, if you want to use them all, three minutes to tell us about the wonderful, fabulous <laughs> Light Years. Over to you. Okay, it's not a classic way to pitch a novel to say that you hate it almost as much as you love it, but when I started to read James Salter's Light Years, which coincided with the time I began to write Foxfires, it almost stopped me writing entirely. When I read the opening lines, I realised it was in the presence of greatness, and it genuinely terrified me that anyone could write so well. I felt I couldn't possibly compete, not that anyone was actually asking me to. It led to me hating the novel with a burning and enduring passion. On the other hand... It simultaneously reminded me what I'm aiming for as a writer, which is lucidity in terms of expression and a sense of all-encompassing immersion for the reader. Now, just as it's not a classic way to pitch a novel by talking about a no uh, by telling you why I hate it, it's not a classic way to pitch a novel to tell you why um, 
another I to tell you about another book entirely but in this case I feel I need to the first novel that sucked me in entirely and wholly was Michelle Magorian's Goodnight Mr Tom I was nine maybe ten years old uh, one minute I'm lying on the top bunk opening a book and the next minute I'm coming to dazed altered in some kind of way having read the whole thing in one sitting reeling from having spent the last couple of hours experience the hor experiencing the horror of the blitz and a redemptive evacu evacuation to the countryside and that is what happened to me with light years for me the experience was entirely immersive it was a novel that reminded me of the power of novels and since then i've read it several times poring over passages to work out how the hell he managed to pull it off in brief, Light Years, which was published in 1975, is the story of a well-heeled American couple, Viri and Nedra Berland, who live with their children in a large house on the Hudson River. Viri is an architect, Nedra a sometimes artist, but that doesn't do justice to them at all. They're mysteries. They're mysteries to the reader, they're mysteries to each other. Their lives are punctuated by beautiful dinner parties and shopping at expensive shops in New York, by affairs and short-lived passions. They're decadent and to an extent careless people, not the sort of people I would particularly care about normally. However, as the novel continues, we see that Viri and Nedra through different points in their lives and they somehow remain beautifully elusive and mysterious, not just to the reader, but to each other. Um, now, James Salter is known as a writer's writer, and novelists in particular are fond of wanging on about how good his sentences are, which is all good and true. And I would read a few paragraphs to give you an idea, but that would be like dipping a cup into the sea to give someone an idea of the ocean. I'm horribly intimidated by this book as a writer and as a reader I sink into it again and again on each subsequent reader. So why have I chosen this book if I love it and hate it in equal measure? Well, it's complicated. That is the best pitch I've ever heard for anything. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, that is incredible. Ooh, Sorry. I wasn't That's... expecting that, Musa, were you? Were you? <laughs> okay, very quickly. That's... Inc I, I'm blown. That's the best. Okay, I was at a wedding in um, it's a place called Leeds Castle, which is actually in Tunbridge Wells. I think. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I was at a wedding there, and this speech reminded me of it's brilliant. So basically, just very quickly before I talk about this book, um, I was at a wedding in Leeds Castle, and it's the greatest best man speech I've ever seen, and it reminded me of this because what happened was everyone was sitting there and waiting for this speech. And it's this big hall in Leeds Castle. It's Grand Hall. And my friend, Tom Chatfield, bless him, Tom. He's actually a brilliant tech writer and novelist in his own right. Tom's sitting there and he's waiting for the speech and two, he's got two best men and they walk up from either side of the hall, from the back of the hall, right? So you know something special. And one of them is holding a bag and the other one is holding like a sort of a scroll almost. And he says, I accuse you, Tom Chatfield, on the night of something, something, date, something, something of wearing this item of clothing to go raving. How do you plead? <laughs> Guilty or innocent? And Tom was like, uh, innocent? And they take out the offending item of clothing. <laughs> it's horrible, technicolor, like almost like leotard. And the place dies and it's 20 minutes of straight. And by the end of the speech, I kid you not, Tom is looking at this bag in fear, going like, what else have they got? <laughs> <laughs> What's in it? There yeah, can't the, be anything else. The, that pitch was so brilliant, it immediately was like, oh my God, this is like a moment. This is like a great pitch. So yeah. Well, let, let's, Will can take a breath now, uh, uh, you know, at that he's, and he now wants to enjoy this moment. So it's it's over to mm. you, so with yeah, yeah, sure, back sure. on the clock to tell us about the bone readers. Over to you. Well, I've also got a stopwatch because I could talk over time because I get excited. So I'm going to be brief anyway. I'll probably be like 90 seconds anyway. So um, The Bone Readers by Jacob Ross. This is a book that blew me away, actually. So 
I read this in 2016 when I was judging the Jalak Prize, which is a prize for people of color in the UK. Uh, shout out to Sunny Singh who set it up. Now I received, you know, when these book prizes, you judge them, you get like hundreds of books through the door and you don't know how you're going to get through them all. And how do you even work out how a prize winner emerges from that? But I read The Bone Readers and the thing that blew me away was that it had everything of all the other books and that you know when you get like a you buy like a, a pot of nutrient a pot of vitamins at the store and it has every single nutrient you could imagine this book has every single nutrient you could imagine so it's 240 pages but in 240 pages it's a crime thriller it takes you somehow through race religion the caribbean slavery colonialism father-son issues feminism patriarchy all seamlessly and the central character is a guy called Michael Dixon, his nickname is Digger, uh, a young police officer with a brilliant intuition for reading the bones of murder victims. And he is brought on to the job by a policeman with a bee in his bonnet, an older detective who basically couldn't solve a murder and who brings him on. But the really crazy thing about the book is this, it's that he's not necessarily chasing the next murder victim. He's chasing, I suppose, the ghost of his father who was implicated in the murder of his own mother. His mother goes missing early in his life. She goes off one day, a feminist vigil for a murdered woman, and she never comes back. And so the entire book, you've got him chasing forward and backwards in time. He's chasing uh, the murderer, but he's chasing the person that killed his mother and looking for resolution. And the entire book is about that. And the stunning thing about it is that it hasn't been turned into a Netflix series, an HBO series. It is one of the finest books I've read in the last 25 years. It just blew me away. So yeah. Jacob Ross, The Bone Readers. Um, oh, bringing it in at two minutes there as well. Both of you just under the time. It's like, nah, we don't need the three. We don't need brevity. Three. Listen, brevity. Brevity. <laughs> <laughs> the soul we're of all about. We're all about yeah. the brevity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, see, I, see, now I don't care about Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm ordering this book immediately. So, so whatever yeah. you say, Joe. You're ordering it anyway. Your, and it's one won. in your eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the, the great thing about doing this with, with Will is that he, he's, he's very lovely uh, um, because he, he's a listener to this podcast. So he knows sort of the, and he knows what happens when we get to this point. And he knows how I feel about things and how I try and balance it all out. So, you know, he's coming to this with, with a lot of knowledge, but I'll admit that he didn't know about the book that he was pitching. That is pure chance. But let's talk about it very quickly, Will, because um, you <laughs> must is right about the pitch, which is what I wasn't expecting. And I was laughing all the way through it um, because the, the way that you were saying, you know, <laughs> how can you hate it as much as you love it as a writer? Um, and the, the fact mm. that by reading it, you know, um, although you were entirely immersed, which of course I will, I've read it at several times now, and each time I feel like, you know, I'm immersed in it. But, um, you know, he's, he's pulled off something amazing with that book. And <laughs> the fact that you're now like, oh God, you know, uh, should I have read it just makes me think even more of it. And it's lovely to hear that perspective from from you a writer because he is known as a writer's writer and it's humble as well can i say sorry to jump in will before you kind of go further but sorry joe but i felt that way with uh haruki murakami's wind up bird chronicle yeah. where i was reading and like i'd almost stop after a few pages and just gasp and almost like applaud at the brilliance you know that how have they done that yeah. with the same we're working with the same well arguably with the same set of letters the same 26 that they've got but what are they how are they doing that mm. yeah yeah yeah, I mean, it's have you have you read this one, uh, Musa? 
No, I haven't had the privilege okay. yet. No, no, I haven't yeah. the privilege. I look forward to it. Well, I think I really think you you, you should, um, and and maybe you'll you'll sort of see what because I, I hearing we'll talk about it. It reminded me of things about this this book, you know. And now I'm thinking, oh, I need to. Sounds need to go incredible. And Sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I kind of had to let this book go before I could write Foxfires because I I obsessed about it, and and then I got obsessed by how uh, how how impoverished my writing was compared to James Salter's and, and it did me no good. No, it did it me no does. favors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was only when I was able to let all of that go, let any expectations go, because I guess when, when you've had some degree of success with your first book, there's always that, there's that uh, expectation yeah. of, you know, oh, I've got to write something good now. And I had to let all of that go and just say, look, I'm just going to tell the story that I need to That's tell. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. You've um, got to achieve your own objectives. It's your own, even like some people have these, like they have book deals and they're 22. And I'm like, that's not my journey. My journey is I have to create the work as perfectly crafted as possible. And like, you know, the mm. book, I, the work I put out this year, I'm so proud of it because every single syllable is exactly where it's meant to be. That's my priority. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. 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 Having had the privilege of judging some book prizes myself, Musa, I know what it's like to sort of receive this onslaught of, mm. of novels or in nonfiction and to be sort of, you know, t t take each one uh, equally and read it the same. But w what you said about how this, the Bone Readers had a little something of every book and, and oh then goodness. the sort of nutrients uh, description just made me think, oh, wow. There's a single page, there's a single page where basically it's, the history of colonialism in a single page is mind-blowing. So basically there's a scene where um, a, a, a policeman comes back into the station and he's had an argument with a Frenchman. So they're on Grenadas, they're all black policemen. He's had an argument with a, with a white Frenchman and the, the chief uh, police officer goes, what happened? He goes, oh, we had an argument and the man slapped me. The, uh, the, the Frenchman, the civilian slapped me. And he goes, okay, well, what, what did he do to apologize? He goes, he gave me $200 to apologize for slapping me. The chief police officer looks over at the young policeman and then smacks him in the jaw as hard as he can. And he said, to the rest of the, the office, he says, look, I've just smacked this police officer with my own fist. But that white Frenchman smacked him with the hand of history. And if any of you see him smack him with the hand of history again, you have my permission to shoot him dead. Whoa. <laughs> that is- Mind blown. That, that is a single page. Yeah. And, I, and I got chills thinking about it. And I read that and I was like, this has to be the winner. Wow. I've never mm -hmm. seen anything like that. If they, if they ever make this into any kind of, I mean, I'm sh I've got shivers even thinking about it. Yeah. The hand yeah. of history. I know, I know. And the, that, and the yeah. fact that it's not, it's not a long book. It's under 300 pages said, and yet it's covering race, religion, father-son issues, Caribbean, and, and all quite seamlessly. I mean, seamlessly, that's, that's a it's, feat. It's like Django Unchained. You know, you, you watch Django yeah. and like, how is it? How has it done that so quickly, almost like at reckless speed, but the depth, yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, mind-blowing. Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be one of these uh, cop-out hosts, but it's got to be a draw. It's got to be a draw today. I mean, I don't do it very often, but <laughs> draw. I, I mean, I, I can't call this one. And it's unfair generous, because- generous. <laughs> the, the James Salter is literally one of my favorite books and Will's pitch was really good because I came into it thinking, you know, no favoritism because you love the book already. And then hearing you must have talk about this one, I'm just like, I need to, you know, I've written it down now because I'm going to order it. And it's I just think this has got to be a draw. 
Yeah, I've got it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you read it and it's it's so funny because you read this book. It's actually reading your opening, throwing the praise back in your direction, Will. So you sent me your book over. And I only just wrote to Will, uh, Will today because like, look, like just to check in before and Will. So actually, bless him. Earlier today, he sent over. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, I I just finished a massive deadline just recently, unfortunately, on a children's book. So I couldn't get this properly. But I was like, this is an unbelievable piece of writing. Like, uh, you're not going to have second book worry with this one. That is very, very kind of you, Musa. And, and, and well, I'm gonna, let's let's throw more pl- praise back at each other because, you, you know, yours is it's a beautiful piece. And like Joe said, just so concise and dense and, yeah, intricate. I just love concise. You know how Sunday's went to street. You know how it is, both of you. You want, you know, your favorite artists, right? Your favorite musicians. When you hear something stripped back, it's just drum, bass, guitar, and vocals. Sometimes you just want it stripped back. Or like a bit of Pharaoh Sanders recently, Live mm. in Paris album. Pharaoh Sanders mm. just stripped back. Beautiful. Ah. Beautiful. Yeah, what more do you want? So I think this is like post, post lockdown. We say this a lot. Joe, I think we should go over to Berlin. Yeah. We're going to go and watch some football. We're going to go and listen to some jazz. Yeah, listen, listen, you're welcome. You're welcome, people. Yes, you're welcome. I'm serious. Please. Yes, please. I'm making a documentary on Blue Note Records at the moment. And no, I yes. am no, wow. immersed in the Blue Note catalogue at the moment, and it's a great place to be. I just got a Sunra vinyl. It's got a Sunra vinyl. Fantastic. IK, the brand new Sunra. So IK7 Records. And they heard this book about, oh my God, it sounds great. Can we read it? I was like, yeah, sure. I sent them a copy of it. And they were like, oh, thank you so much. Would you like a vinyl? And they sent me, a, they sent me <laughs> the latest Sunra. I know. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm ble- we are blessed. And the other thing mm. as well, one thing on the jazz note. So I started out doing a lot of poetry with jazz, right? I actually mm. ran a poetry and jazz night for like seven years in London. And so Shabaka Hutchings, who's doing all this incredible work now, is somebody I did a lot of work with. Soweto Kinch and Don Kinch's dad. Like, so I did a lot of spoken word gigs with jazz. So it's always been in me. So to see this whole movement now like growing is just like so gratifying. It's, yeah, mm. it's a joy. It's a joy. Oh, it is, and you know, we've got, that's a whole other podcast now—the jazz podcast. Let's do jazz. Let's that's do jazz. Yeah, yeah, jazz podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the jazz and football. No doubt. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've mentioned these books before, but I honestly can't tell you how much I have enjoyed them. Uh, in the end, it was all about love by Musa Okonga. It's out now via the brilliant Rough Trade Books and Foxfires by Will Muir. Also out now, published by the equally brilliant Salt. And uh, I can't recommend them highly enough you must get them read them and then share them and will musa what an absolute pleasure we could talk forever couldn't we but uh, i think we should leave it there for now and come back for our jazz football <laughs> mashup podcast <laughs> in 2022 oh, it's been a real pleasure joe thank you absolute joy us. thank you so much it's worth the wait absolutely, absolutely. thank you both so much thank you Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.